the ideal would be internationally, everyone understands the contributions of these ecosystems and these reefs and are making conscious choices day to day on those things that are within their control to preserve, protect and, and restore them. Because we, we want to see these thriving reefs in the future that support the local communities that depend on them. It's time to change the world. There's got to be a better way. It's time for something better. You feel like you can't really make a difference, but the fact is that you can. We're telling the stories of people who are changing the world and how you can help. You know, we just need more companies that are out there solving these problems. Businesses, nonprofits, artists, and individuals who have found a problem and then created a solution. If we want to have real impact, we have to do it together. You'll come away from every episode with action steps you can take to be part of that solution. We're never going to feel satisfied and happy if we just stay the same. We can each change the world every single day. People can actually come together and build a future for themselves along with other people. Our daily actions have a massive impact. So what will we do about it? We can remake the world. Because guess what? We can. Hi everyone, I'm Nathan Gardner and this is We Can Remake the World a podcast about people who are changing the world and how you can help. Before we get to our interview for today, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has been listening and who's been sticking with us through our first several episodes. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and written a review. It's so helpful for new podcasts to get the word out and get more listeners, so really we appreciate it. Thank you to any of you who have shared our show with friends or coworkers. Just thanks for sticking with us. Really, we're so grateful. We're putting a lot of love and care into these episodes, and we want to spread this message around, this message of the solutions that are available to us right now to address any problem we can think of. So we're grateful to all of you who continue to help us spread that message. Let's grow this community of world changers. Let's grow these new ideas. And let's continue to encourage ourselves to see something beyond the problems that we face. Let's see past the problems to the solutions, to the better world ahead. So we're glad you're here with us to be part of this message, part of telling these stories. Thank you. We are lucky enough to have two guests today, and they're both leaders at a nonprofit based in California, which has been doing pioneering work for the ocean for decades. This was one of the first organizations in the world to sound the alarm when it comes to the health of our oceans, based on scientific data that nobody could ignore or refute. And this organization continues to do amazing things around the world with volunteers and data collection and research. And we're so grateful they took the time to speak with us. We learned so much. And if you want to know more about our oceans and how to keep them healthy, definitely stick around. I'm not sure there are words to describe the magic of reefs. Any of us who have been lucky enough to spend time exploring a reef of any kind, maybe snorkeling or diving, we can try, but the amount of mystery and the incredible range of colors, the diversity of life that you see, and just this sense of magic is so incredible, it's really hard to describe. 
I remember the first time I was in a live reef, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Hawaii to stay with some friends who were living on the Big Island, and we were snorkeling off the west coast of the island in a really beautiful part of the coastline. One of our friends who lived there at the time had grown up in Honolulu, so she knew where to go to have the best experiences. She knew where the good spots were. So she took us out to the ocean, and this was my first time snorkeling, first time in a reef. It was a lot of firsts, and it was super exciting. And we put our snorkels on, and I went out, and at first I sort of saw just the beginnings of the reef pieces here and there, and it was really nice. And then we got close to this huge outcropping of rock, and I was suddenly breathless. I was like, what is this incredible underwater city that I'm observing? Because I could just see all of these different forms of life darting in and out of these beautiful, colorful things that I barely had any information about. I didn't really understand exactly what I was seeing, but I knew that it was amazing. It was really like an ocean metropolis. There's a quote from conservationist Sylvia Earle, who actually has done a lot of amazing work in the oceans. We'll talk about her later in the episode, actually. But she also talks about nature in general. And she has this quote that I love, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I should probably look it up. But it's something like, um, you look at a forest and see a lot of trees and plants. I look at a forest and see a bustling metropolis of life, a living city, something like that. And I think reefs are exactly the same in that sense. It was just amazing the amount of life and diversity and motion that was going on in this dense little part of this huge ocean. I'll never forget that first time that I saw a reef and got to experience it for myself. It was just incredible. And it makes you wonder how all of these different species have been maintaining the balance that's required for an ecosystem for so many thousands of years, because a lot of our reefs are really old. There's a reason, I think, that the Great Barrier Reef is a natural wonder on our planet that we've all heard about. Even though most of us probably haven't had the chance to see it up close, it's so large that it's visible from space. That's huge. And that's something underwater, remember, something underwater that's visible from space. The foundational structures of the Great Barrier Reef, speaking of how old reefs can be, are believed to be over half a million years old. And it's taken thousands and thousands of years for it to grow to its current size. The Great Barrier Reef, off the eastern coast of Australia, is home to over 1,500 species of fish, 30 species of sea mammals like whales and dolphins, hundreds of species of birds, and over 2,000 plant species. And that's just a snapshot of the creatures that call the Great Barrier Reef home or a regular place that they're visiting on their migratory paths. Sea turtles depend on this reef as a breeding site. Sharks and stingrays feed on the abundance of fish in the reef, which contributes to the ecosystem in the entire ocean. Starfish are everywhere, and of course, the reef is full of coral. If you think of coral reefs as rainforests of the sea or forests of the sea, which I think is a really good analogy, I think you can see coral as the trees. Coral are the foundation for everything that goes on in a reef. They're the structure that kind of holds it together. It's a habitat. It's a food source. These corals have a symbiotic relationship with the plants and animals that call a reef their home. Without the corals, 
Just like the trees in the rainforest, plants and animals lose their habitat. Without trees, there's no forest. Without corals, there's no reef. I wanted to know more about reefs because my knowledge was pretty limited, and I wanted to understand how to better protect them. I had heard little bits of information here and there about the health of our reefs and how they were in decline, but I didn't really know much in detail, and I thought it was time to find out. So I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to speak with two leaders from ReefCheck a nonprofit based in California, close to Los Angeles, and I had all of my questions answered and way more. And I have to say, after this conversation, I'm even more in awe of reefs now than I've ever been and way more committed to protecting them. These precious ocean metropolises, these amazing, thriving, crazy, barely understandable centers of life in the ocean. ReefCheck has volunteer teams in over 90 countries, and they were the first organization to produce and share a global survey of reef health, which essentially single-handedly sounded the alarm about the health of our reefs and the fact that they were declining, which was beginning to seriously take place in the late 1990s, when their first global report was created and released. I spoke with Jan Freiwald, the executive director of ReefCheck, and Matt Bullock, a board member and technology leader within the organization. And both Jan and Matt shared their thoughts on why reefs matter, what most of us don't know about reefs, why reefs are in trouble, and what we can do about it, which is a lot. So stick around. Hi, I'm Jan Freiwald. I'm the executive director of the ReefCheck Foundation. And uh, this is Matt Bullock. I joined the board in 2014, actually as an intern. I'm focused on networking, board development, some strategic planning, and of course, fundraising. Perfect. Thank you both. I'd love to start by almost introducing reefs. I think reefs are sort of mysterious to many people. From your perspective, would you share maybe what reefs are exactly? And outside of the famous ones that most of us are aware of, where can they be found? Well, there's really two types of reefs that we work in. There's the coral reefs in the tropics that probably everybody has heard of. But there's also what we call rocky reefs. And many of those are found in the colder waters, for example, along the California coast. And then often you have these forests of kelp growing on them that create a lot of habitat for, for fish and, and other species. And so in, in contrast to coral reefs, these reefs are not growing like corals do, which are live animals building the structure. They, they are just basically rock. And then all the life grows on top of, of that rocky reef. Why do you think it's so important to be aware of the health of our reefs? Because while coral reefs and rocky reefs make up a small percentage of the whole area of the ocean, they are actually the places where a lot of the life is happening. And a lot of the resources that coastal communities use all over the world come, come from these reefs. Yeah, if you've ever heard the saying uh, that coral reefs are, are the rainforests of the sea, that's because of their just incredible richness of life. So fisheries that sustain populations of people, they provide coastal protection protection from erosion, big storms and storm surges come in. They protect human life and uh, human infrastructure, provide us recreation and, of course, tourism. California Rocky Reefs specifically support enormous communities of wildlife and plants as well. And since up to 70% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean and a healthy ocean depends on healthy reefs, 
we really can't afford not to be aware of the health of our reefs. If you look around a California Rocky Reef, coral reef, or reef made of anything, plants, animals use the structure of the reef to survive, and they provide incubation for plants and animals to live and thrive and reproduce. So in that way, yeah, they basically serve the entire ocean. What, in your experience, indicates a healthy reef and what indicates a struggling or dying reef? For tropical reefs, definitely a high percentage of live coral cover is very important, as well as a healthy population of fish species. Often overfished reefs, there's not enough fish that clean the algae off the reef. And then those overfished reefs are declining over time because the corals can't survive without the fish being present to help them stay algae-free. Yeah, like, like we just talked about, a healthy reef of any type, regardless of its composition, has life everywhere. So varied colors, variety of species of fish, uh, invertebrates and plants of basically all sizes. Compare that to a struggling coral, which will turn white or bleach, as many people have heard about. Would you share a bit about how Reef Check began and how long has Reef Check been around? Sure, yeah. So it was originally founded in 1996 in Los Angeles uh, by a marine ecologist. His name was Dr. Gregor Hodgson. He founded it, built the board, and really established everything that you know Reef Check was to become. Uh, the following year, right after that, we conducted the first ever global survey of coral reef health. Uh, so that provided scientific confirmation that coral reefs really were in crisis due to overfishing, illegal fishing, and pollution. So then in 2002, so what, six years after founding, uh, ReefCheck released uh, our first ever five-year report. If folks want to look it up, it's called the Global Coral Reef Crisis Trends and Solutions. So that was the first scientific documentation of the worldwide decline in coral reef health. The first one globally was generated by ReefCheck. That's right. That's right. Wow. It's the first one. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was really Gregor's vision to be able to provide that data because it was just not something that was uh, really a focus. But not surprisingly, uh, the report concluded that basically no reef in the world was untouched by some form of human impact. But it also discussed success stories, even as far back as then, showing that coral reefs can recover with the type of monitoring, management, and protection that Reef Check facilitates. What, from what you're seeing in the work that you do, is the data showing about our current state regarding reefs and the ocean ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, well, I'll ask Jan to help me with the science, but I know from a data perspective, we've got um, the threat of ocean acidification. And then uh, in terms of climate change, uh, warming waters is impacting the way coral reefs, many coral reefs can sustain themselves with their symbiotic relationships. So what we're seeing, like in the case of the Great Barrier Reef, right, is a large scale bleaching of coral that, you know, in terms of whether it can be restored or how long it's going to take for it to be restored, just it's a massive decline, right? I'm not sure on the Rocky Reef side, I think we've had actual health improvements, right, Jan, like uh, in California, but the coral reefs, that's where we've really seen a decline and, and we're looking at ways to actually transplant and improve those reefs, right? Right. But there was actually a study that we were part of and that used reef check data that showed that actually some of the corals are adapting to warmer water temperatures. And so 
in some of these places where you would expect them to bleach because the water got too hot, they're actually bleaching less than they did, for example, 20 years ago, suggesting they, they're actually kind of dealing with this environmental change. And that study could only have been done because we had 20 years of data from, from ReefCheck. So, so there's some hopeful signs as well. It's not all doom and doom. <laughs> what does it take for a reef to recover? So evolution is one. Unfortunately, that doesn't occur as quickly as the, the human impacts we're throwing at reefs are occurring. So that's that's not sustainable. But I, I guess to answer your question, in a perfect world, if if we alleviated those human impacts lowered uh, sea, sea temperatures, if a reef hadn't, hasn't been bleached for a, an extended period of time or gone through multiple, multiple bleaching events back to back, then it could take on its algae again and essentially, yeah, recover. But right now we're needing more and more human intervention to help that happen. What would you say are some of the most detrimental human practices and behaviors that affect the health of reefs around the world? I think hands down the number one is overfishing on a local level and climate change on a global level. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a pretty extensive list. To give the key examples, so deforestation, industrial agriculture, and burning of fossil fuels. So those all the way they impact it is all of those things increase the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And since that's true in the atmosphere, it's also true in the ocean. And that causes what's called ocean acidification. Acidification slows the growth of coral, uh, and if it gets really acidic because of these things, and that can actually dissolve coral skeletons, and yeah, there's no recovering from that, no opportunity to take on symbiotic algae if skeletons have been uh, dissolved. The second key one, and this is one of the key ones that uh, were highlighted in the original study that ReefCheck did that we talked about, um, are destructive fishing practices. So explosives being used, cyanide being used. Cyanide? Um, I didn't know that that was a practice. Yeah, that was actually being done for a period of time in certain communities uh, and overfishing in general, uh, discarded fishing gear, uh, as well as touching or removing and harvesting corals uh, for the aquarium and, uh, and jewelry trade. One thing that I would say about destructive fishing practices, I don't, you know, I, we don't want to attack communities that are doing what they need to do in order to sustain themselves, right? And that's what that's what we, we were originally seeing is ecosystems were getting overfished and these things like explosives, cyanide were being used because the fish stocks were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I've also read about the fact that the types of sunscreen that we use affects reefs specifically and the life that thrives in reefs. Yeah, that's right. There's some compounds in, in sunscreens that are highly, highly toxic to coral reefs. And so there's now a, a number of sunscreen brands out there that are reef friendly. So they don't, they don't use those compounds anymore. In some places, sunscreens have even been outlawed. So I think in Hawaii, you're not allowed to sell sunscreens that contain those compounds. So yeah, looking for reef friendly sunscreens is definitely a contribution you can make. <clears throat> there's actually more and more evidence that it affects other species than corals too. So there's discussions about how it affects tempered reefs kelp forest as well. Sure. And I think you have to wonder then, how does it affect humans? <laughs> yeah, you, you wonder. <laughs> I'd love to now go into a bit about what ReefCheck is doing, obviously related to conservation in some way, but I'd love to hear more about just the work that ReefCheck does. Where is ReefCheck focused? So we work with volunteer scuba divers 
that we consider citizen scientists. So they don't have to have a scientific background or training. They have to be scuba divers. And then we teach them the scientific methods to monitor coral reefs in the tropics and, and rocky reefs and kelp forests along the California coast. And then we use that information that, that our citizen scientists collect to work on conserving and protecting the reefs. We've got, uh, what, about 30,000 volunteer divers around the world? Wow. Yeah, the really cool thing, too, by teaching people to look at the reef in the scientific way is they really start seeing things that they have never noticed before. So one of the responses we often get after our trainings is that they come out of the water and they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea there's all these different species here. I've been diving here for many years in, in some cases, but then by teaching them the differences between the species, they, they get a whole new appreciation for the diversity and a whole new interest in, in protecting it as well. That's great. So the model for ReefCheck is sort of to generate usable and actionable data with the help of volunteers all over the world. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. All over the world. And we can talk about really the breadth and everything, but yeah. That's it. Creating the data and then being part of economically and ecologically sustainable solutions uh, for communities that could use the help. Uh, so uh, one example might be uh, providing a community um, more economically sustainable opportunities for tourism instead of fishing practices that uh, damage the reef, which might be their default. So not only are you educating your volunteers and the public, but also education for locals who could be using more sustainable practices. That's right. That's right. Providing alternatives like ecotourism, for example. If there aren't uh, alternatives to, you know, sustaining yourself and your community and your family, there's there's not much that can be done. So getting involved in the local communities directly and, and empowering them is the only way that it's going to be sustainable. Hmm. I was just thinking e ecotourism is sort of this fascinating and perfect balancing act almost where folks from developed countries are contributing to the solution just by having the resources to go and visit places which need more resources. And it's it's kind of a really interesting conundrum because it requires some expenditure of resources for travel, but it can actually be part of the solution. Do you think that ecotourism ought to gain more momentum as a solution for a lot of communities which really are hungry for alternatives to a depleted system? Yeah, I mean, tourism comes with its own problems, but if you're going to have tourism, then ecotourism is definitely a good solution and, and you need healthy environments that people want to go to for that. And so you need to set up protected areas where you can have that. Yeah, I think the balance you're talking about, Nathan, is is right on. That's something that we need to continue to to focus on, right? Because j just the travel component, right? Air travel, for example, is environmentally impactful. So yeah, it's definitely a balance, but we see it succeeding in, in different places for sure. Uh, I, I just returned from a trip my first time in, in Africa and just like looking at the, the volume and the concentration of wildlife there, healthy wildlife there in the parks was just amazing. And one of the communities that we visited in Uganda involved people that lived in the forest off the land, but were actually competing with the mountain gorillas for resources. So the local government worked with those people to bring them out of the forest um, so that gorilla conservation could take hold. But they involved them then in the transition and provided economic alternatives, specifically tourism, so that those those people whose lives were being impacted by the conservation effort 
um, were actually a part of uh, the solution and in getting involved in tourism, etc., and as guides and that sort of thing. So, so what are some of the most impactful choices we can make to allow for the recovery of our reefs and to lower the amount of you know detrimental waste and practices that are harming reefs throughout the world? Yeah, you, we've alluded to some of those. Number one, I would say, if we've heard uh, the the three R's, right? Reduce, reuse, and recycle. But reduce is is definitely number one for a reason. Essentially, cutting down on what you throw away. Uh, look for opportunities to reuse things or buy things that will last, and stay away from disposables. Volunteer with and donate to organizations that are working on environmental issues important to you. That could be Reef Check. That could be another organization you know is doing good work. Uh, get involved, donate, volunteer, uh, educate yourself and others. That's part of your listeners for this podcast, right? When you further your own education, you can help others understand the importance and the value of our natural resources in general. Choosing a more sustainable plant-driven diet. I, I, I myself, I, 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 I eat animal protein. Um, we've tried to cut back. What is the impact of eating a more plant-based diet? I'd be curious to hear just the effects that you see as being important to ocean conservation and the health of reefs from the way that we eat. Yeah, when we talked about we talked about industrial agriculture, so the way that that causes runoff chemicals into the ocean and then ocean acidification, there's that. There's also the release of carbon dioxide from farming practices, so cows, for example, into the atmosphere and that carbon dioxide going into the air, increasing the concentration of carbon dioxide in the ocean, which then causes acidification that causes stress uh, for reefs. Uh, So through these things, stimulating local action to protect the remaining reefs that we've got and rehabilitate the, uh, the damaged ones worldwide, especially through the creation of marine protected areas which are basically incubators around existing marine ecosystems that allow plants, invertebrates, and fish to basically be sheltered from human impact and uh, regrow and thrive. So just like we have on land where we have national parks or state parks, they are just special places where human activity is is limited. And in some places, you're not allowed to fish at all. In other places, people are allowed to do certain fishing practices, but not others. They have a myriad of benefits to the to the species inside the protected area as well as to the surrounding areas because there's no boundaries in the ocean, right? So animals can move back and forth between them. Are either of you aware of any specific examples of marine protected areas that just demonstrated really clear resilience? You know, what happened when a, when a zone went from being open to all manner of human activity and then was protected. Yeah, there, there's many examples. One that I can think of right now is in Baja at Cabo Pulmo. It's a marine protected area that has been in place for maybe 20 years or so. And that has been implemented by the local community. They stopped fishing and the reef and fish populations just came back much faster than anybody expected. And, and now it's, it's kind of the prime example of an ecotourism location where people come to this small village and to go scuba diving because you can see fish in other species in, in abundance that, that you don't see in the surrounding areas at all. Another example is, is here in California around the Northern Channel Islands, where marine protected areas have been in place for a while now. They have shown that the species that you would think recover all recovered. So, so the species that are not fished anymore are much more abundant and bigger in the protected areas. But we're now starting to see that those protected areas are also more resistant against invasive species. 
So we have in California, we have a lot of algae species that, that came in from other places that, that are non-native. And it seems like these areas where, where we have a healthy ecosystem inside of protected areas are more resistant to those algae taking hold than surrounding areas that are overfished. So they work. It's just a matter of increasing momentum. That's it. And and it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Like we said, certain MPAs might just restrict specific activities. Others may be completely locked down. And what we need to do is continue monitoring once an MPA is created uh, and, and uh, collecting that data to show how much it's helping and what way it's helping so that we can make adjustments and fine tune. I love the ocean as an example of one spot improving affecting the entire environment, the entire organism. And it seems to me like the more we think along those lines as it relates to our entire earth, the better off we'll be. But in the ocean, I think it's so clear because as you said, the terrain doesn't change in the same way that it does on land. And there are no borders. There are no barriers between one part of the ocean and another, generally speaking. Right, right. And just this idea that if we protect this one particular area, we're getting benefit immediately around it and beyond. Yeah. And then bringing that back to our citizen science approach, right? the local communities can then see those differences for themselves. The problem often in the ocean is when you look from the surface, it all looks the same, right? Protected or not. But by taking the scuba divers and citizen scientists to look inside those protected areas and then also have them look outside and collect that data, they can they can see that impact. Yeah. And I think when people see that a solution is possible and they're shown how to be part of it, then often they're willing, they're at least willing to give it a try as long as they understand it, as long as it's accessible to them and they feel like it's, you know, it's possible. Yeah. In, in all aspects, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, uh, it's a good peek into, yeah, what, what habits could be better for the planet. And the final question I'd like to ask, if you could shape how things play out over the next 10 years when it comes to ocean conservation, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, so further expansion of those marine protected areas, protecting both rocky and coral reef ecosystems, increased focus by political leadership. Uh, especially in developed countries, we really need to be leading, leading the way. You know, developed countries, we, we have the resources uh, to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and reduce the damage caused by humans on our natural environment. So we need to, not, not that it's only developed countries, it's develop, developing countries as well, but we need to be leading the way. I'd like to see a global community committed to protecting and restoring the ecosystems we rely on, ocean ecosystems as well as those on land, essentially by making greener lifestyle choices. So no one can really claim ignorance anymore. We know the choices that uh, we should be making on a day-to-day basis, and we should be holding each other accountable. That includes not just friends, family, but the companies, the brands that we're buying from, that we're supporting, and policymakers as well. Um, we vote. So hold them accountable for doing the things that are important to us. And ultimately, through all those things, I'd like to see all those things uh, yield reefs and marine ecosystems that are diverse with life, increasing diversity of life, and that they're healthy, they're resilient, and they're growing. And to have the scientific data to back that up. Well, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think, yeah, at the local level, we need we need to address overfishing and, and the local impact that we have on the reefs and on, on a global level climate change because we we want to see these thriving reefs in the future that support the local communities that depend on them thank you both so much matt and jan for joining me today yeah thank you for having us i don't know about you all but after this conversation i'll never look at reefs or our oceans the same way again 
I learned so much. And it's so important for us, I think, to learn things like this, to understand what gifts we have on this planet and why it's important to preserve them. One thing that Jan said during our chat today really struck me. He spoke about how the divers that ReefCheck trains and works with to conduct research completely change their perspective once they visit these reefs as citizen scientists, which is the term Jan uses, which I love. People who have been diving for years suddenly appreciate reefs with a whole new and greater understanding once they've been trained to know what they're looking at. And once they're aware of all the life that goes on down there and all the complex systems that contribute to it, I can speak to this experience myself and I wasn't trained to see anything or recognize anything that was in front of me when I made that first trip to Hawaii to snorkel and visit my first reef. It changes you. It changes your understanding of what a reef is and what it means. And I love that some of these divers were really experienced, but they still had their minds blown. They still were caught up in this new understanding. And, you know, you don't have to visit a reef or go snorkeling or be a diver to have this experience. We have this incredible opportunity at this time where we have access to amazing resources like books, of course, and then also documentaries, which are all over the place, which are beautifully filmed, and they bring us into these worlds. They show us visually and audibly the wonder of these incredible places and the beauty of the natural world. And they also help us to understand how fragile these systems can be if humans continue to introduce destructive behaviors and don't make changes. We have access to information from scientists all around the globe who are helping to look at the ocean and our planet and see something incredible and worth protecting. We just have to choose to expose ourselves to these sources of information, to take the time to watch these documentaries, and then open our minds to it. And we can still have that experience of a new understanding, which really just fills us with wonder and hopefully a desire to protect what we have. There's an idea that ties into this that I want to explore in our first changemaker for today's episode. Our first new idea, an understanding, which if we all adopted, could contribute to some really meaningful action. So, changemaker number one, we are all connected to everything on the planet. I think one thing that strikes me most listening back to my conversation with Matt and Jan is this idea of interconnectedness. And I think it's so important for us to reflect on and, and consider. It shows up in a couple different ways, I think. First off, there are no boundaries in the ocean. There are no border controls. Whatever enters the water in one location impacts the entire ocean over time because that material travels freely with the movement of the water. We're not used to this idea on land, I think, where we've created separation between cities and states, regions and countries. We don't always see ourselves as part of this global community, including both land and ocean and everything alive on the planet. And we should. We are part of the system of the Earth, and it's time to begin acting from that knowledge. It's easy and even understandable, I think, to be out of sight, out of mind when it comes to the health of our oceans because we're so physically separated from it. But over time, we're seeing that our actions really matter. 
Even something as simple as the type of sunscreen we're wearing has a powerful effect on ocean communities, and we know that we depend on healthy oceans for a healthy planet. Matt and Jan talked about how the ocean supports life on land, too, by offering massive amounts of oxygen to the atmosphere, absorbing a lot of the greenhouse gases that we produce, and it serves an important role in the global food chain. So it's time to start treating the oceans as the precious resource that they are, especially reefs because of the huge impact that the health of reefs has on the overall health of the ocean. So let's allow this understanding of interconnectedness to really sink into the way we look at the world and the way we behave. And that brings us to change maker number two. It's time to make change now if we want to preserve the health of our oceans and therefore our planet. Here's a little something that's likely to blow your mind. Did you know that reefs only occupy 0.1% of the world's ocean area, about the land area of France in total, but reefs provide a home for at least 25% of all marine species globally? Could you imagine if 25% of the species on land depended on France as a healthy ecosystem to survive? How would we treat France? What would we do to conserve and protect it? That's how we should be treating our reefs. Maybe you've seen photos of coral reefs, or you've had the chance to visit them. Maybe you've seen photos of the Great Barrier Reef. About 20 years ago, many of these photos were full of brilliant colors. Neon pinks and yellows and oranges and greens. These reefs, especially the Great Barrier Reef, looked like a magical world full of life. And parts of it still do, but now many of these photos show only one color, white or ash gray, due to coral bleaching, which Matt mentioned during our conversation. In 2016, between 30 and 50% of the coral in the Great Barrier Reef, the largest reef on Earth, perished in a massive bleaching event. In 2017, the government of Japan reported that 75% of its largest reef off the coast of Okinawa in southern Japan had died for the same reason. And the story is unfortunately similar around the world. At least half of our reefs are really struggling and most of these major events have taken place in the last 10 to 20 years, which I think is how we know that it's more about human behavior than anything else. Human activity is the primary cause of struggle for these corals, therefore the reefs, therefore the ocean. This is not to freak anybody out or, you know, use fear as a motivator, but as I say over and over again, we have to understand where we stand if we're going to make meaningful change and if we're going to behave with the sense of urgency that I think is really called for in some of these cases. This is why organizations like ReefCheck are so important. The data that ReefCheck and other organizations are creating to help us increase our understanding and awareness about the causes and the impacts of human behavior and what we can do to turn it around is crucial. I don't want you to feel disempowered or fearful, but I do want you to understand where we are and why it's important to become aware and do what we each can. Which takes us nicely to changemaker number three. We can make a difference now when it comes to our reefs. Let's all make this part of our way of thinking about this problem. 
And this is where the good news comes in. There's so much we can do. There are so many action steps we can take to have a positive impact here. So many of the decisions we make end up impacting the ocean in some way. So there's a lot of opportunity to make intentional choices that will have positive impact. Let's move to our what you can do today section now and dig in to some of these options that we each have. Here's what you can do today. I listened back to the conversation with Matt and Jan and did a little research of my own to come up with some of the clearest action steps we can each take. I call these the three S's. Sunscreen, single use, and seafood. These to me are three of the clearest and easiest ways that you can make a difference based on your daily habits right now. Let's start with sunscreen. If you choose to use reef and ocean safe sunscreen, you're making a big difference. According to the National Park Service in the United States, up to 6,000 tons of sunscreen enter our reefs off the world's coastlines every year. And most of those 6,000 tons are unfortunately the wrong kind of sunscreen, full of chemicals known to be toxic for ocean life. So this is a choice that has big implications around the world. Avoid sunscreens which contain petrolatum an oil-based additive which takes years to biodegrade and is proven to harm and kill aquatic life around the ocean. Also avoid sunscreens with titanium dioxide, oxybenzone, and octinoxate. Titanium dioxide is a type of titanium which is also harmful to aquatic life, and oxybenzone and octanoxate are two chemicals which are listed in the active ingredient section of countless sunscreens. They're very common, but they've been proven to cause coral bleaching, and actually in some studies are linked to types of cancer as well, so definitely avoid these kinds of sunscreens. The best sunscreen options have titanium oxide, not to be confused with titanium dioxide, or zinc oxide as their active ingredients. And look out especially for sunscreens which list a non-nano version of these minerals, which means that those particles which are protecting you from the sun, made of zinc or titanium, are large enough to stay out of your pores and the pores and bodies of wildlife as well. There are some great companies out there which make reef-safe sunscreens, and we'll post links to those companies on our website. We actually got some recommendations from Matt and Jan after the interview. I will say also, though, some companies are putting a reef-safe label on their sunscreen when it's not actually true. It's not a label that's enforced in the U.S. and most of the places around the world. So if you see that label, make sure that you do a quick Google search about that company to confirm that they're actually using reef-safe ingredients. And check out the label, too. The labels will tell you a lot of information. So that's our first S, sunscreen. Next is seafood. We can each make a choice to eat less seafood. Mass-produced products like canned tuna, which we've all had, I think, at one point or another in our lives, at least most of us, smoked salmon, frozen tilapia, and swordfish steaks, these all come at an ecological cost as companies use mass fishing practices to capture these animals. Jan repeatedly talked about how overfishing is one of the biggest detrimental impacts on our oceans and reefs, and this is why these mass fishing practices... According to a report released by leading ocean protection organization Oceana, commercial fishing removes roughly 400 million pounds of wildlife from the ocean every single day. Per day. That's 160 billion pounds per year. 
according to this report, as much as 40% of those daily 400 million pounds are thrown overboard because current fishing practices involve using massive nets, which can't target the one species that they're catching, like tuna, lobster, or shrimp. These nets also catch sea turtles, dolphins, whales, sharks, stingrays, and the list goes on. This means that roughly 64 million pounds of ocean wildlife are being killed and thrown overboard every day in order to serve seafood in restaurants and supermarkets around the globe. There's a term for this, for catching wildlife unintentionally and then having to throw it overboard. It's called bycatch and it's depleting our oceans and reefs beyond the fishing that we're doing where we actually take and use the wildlife that we've caught. So as you learn more about the state of things as they are, consider consuming less seafood as a way to make a difference right now. And our final S, single use. Avoid all single-use products as much as you can, especially plastic products. As we learned from Emma during our final straw episode, our oceans are full of plastic, and it's time to do something about it. Matt and Jan reiterated this need to avoid single-use, especially plastics, as they pollute our oceans and harm wildlife as they get into the stomachs and bodies of wild animals. Our fish are eating teeny pieces of plastic, and then larger fish are eating them, larger animals are eating them, and it's making its way up the food chain into our bodies too. The great news here is it's really easy to make a change here. Use reusable bags, reusable coffee cups, reusable straws, and reusable cutlery as a big step in reducing your single-use plastic consumption. Check out our final straw episode for more tips here. A few other choices you can make include eating less animal products in general. Animal agriculture has a massive impact on our environment and definitely our oceans. So eating meat once or twice a week rather than three or four times a day is another big decision you can make that has huge impact on our entire planet and especially our oceans. We can also educate ourselves more about the conservation efforts out there, including marine protected areas or MPAs. We can choose to visit ecotourism locations to support the work that's going on there when we're deciding where to travel next. We can learn more about and support organizations like Reef Check or the Mission Blue organization, which is run by the respected Dr. Sylvia Earle, and they're doing some amazing work. They call MPAs Hope Spots, and they're encouraging awareness and creation of more Hope Spots around the world, which are proven to bring ocean life back to a place of vitality and resilience. So we can learn more about these organizations and support them with our time as volunteers with our finances if we choose to donate, and just by educating ourselves and sharing that information with others so that these organizations' missions are supported by more people through greater awareness. Our challenge today focuses on the three S's. Join us and take the three S's challenge. We challenge you to make a commitment to avoid all sunscreen, which is harmful for wildlife, to avoid all single-use plastics as best you can, and to be mindful of and cut down on your consumption of seafood. Learn more about and purchase reef-safe sunscreens. Buy reusable bags, coffee cups, cutlery, and straws. 
And cut down on your seafood consumption. Maybe only eat seafood when you're out at a restaurant, or consume seafood only once a week, or consider eliminating seafood from your diet altogether. That's the choice that I personally have made, but whatever you feel is right for you, give it some thought and make the choice that you can. Use this as an opportunity to become more mindful of the resource that we're taking from the ocean. Understand that there are implications to having tuna on every single shelf in every single grocery store, and see it for the precious resource that it is. As we do these things, we give the oceans a little bit of a breather and allow them to start to recover, which will serve all of us in the long run in many ways, as we've learned today. If you'd like to support ReefCheck or get involved with the work that they're doing, visit their website at reefcheck.org, where you can donate to the organization and learn more about the work they do or sign up to volunteer. And you don't have to be a diver to volunteer. You can also pitch in by supporting as a photographer if you have experience there, a community organizer, a citizen scientist, a corporate sponsor financially, or by doing some volunteer social media work or public relations work. There are a lot of ways to get involved, and what's great is ReefCheck is global, so no matter where you are, there's likely a relatively local branch that you can contact and support. Wow, this felt like a big one. There's a lot here. I think it's amazing how focusing on just reefs opens this huge conversation around the entire ocean and how we're interacting with it. And yeah, this feels big. To me, it feels really big. And there's a lot here as far as the changes that we can make and that we would be intelligent, I think, to make. But the thing to remember is we can all make a difference every day in our own way, which contributes to the overall solutions and the overall change in direction. Just by listening to this episode, you've taken a big step forward because so many of us are still in the dark when it comes to a lot of this information about reefs, about the oceans, about how much we're fishing and the impact that that has. We're so grateful that you're on this journey with us to expand your ideas of the world and to understand where things are so that we can move to a better place, so that we can build a better world. And we promise to continue bringing you more opportunities to learn and understand better and make an impact in hundreds of ways every day. If you enjoyed this episode, if you feel that you benefited from it or learned something or grew in some way that you want others to experience, please share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it and would find it inspiring. Please jump into whatever listening platform you use and give us a rating and a review and help us to spread the word. Stay safe out there, continue taking care of yourselves and supporting those around you, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.